0: I have uh, a rather embarrassing, recurring dream that happens about once every month or so, every other month or so. Um, and it's, it is a little embarrassing, but I'm gonna share it with you, anyways. Uh, and I don't know how long I've been having it because I have a really bad memory. I texted my mom this week to ask her if she remembers me having it as a kid, and she said that was the first she had heard of it. So I don't know how far back it goes, but it goes back as far as I can remember. Uh, So here's how this dream goes. Uh, Something like this. I'm usually walking through a wooded area. There are trees around me, and there's grass, but the grass is really wet, almost like swampy. And so I'm walking really carefully, trying to stay as dry as I can, and there's like sticks that I can step on to try not to get my feet wet. And I'm about to take a step, and I look down, and right before I put my foot down, I see that this stick I was about to step on is not a stick. And as it slithers away, I realize that it was a snake. And uh, I then have this like, moment of fear, but then it's followed by relief because I didn't step on this snake, right? Um, but that relief quickly goes away because then I realize that all the, snakes, the sticks around me are actually snakes, and then there's snakes coming down from the trees, And then I wake up in a panic and I can't go back to sleep. I'm usually sweaty and just like shaking. Um, And this happens about once every other month. It's strange, isn't it? Now, here's something else strange. I'm not the only one here today that has a recurring dream about snakes. Both of your pastors have a recurring dream that comes back to us that we found out that we share very similar dream about snakes uh, that, for, at least for me, leads to a very real fear of snakes when I'm awake, too. Uh, I hate snakes. Uh, one of the experiences that, that perhaps has led to this continued fear of snakes happened when I was on staff at Aldersgate Camp. My wife, Michelle, and I were dating at the time. We were both on staff, and the staff takes a trip at the beginning of the summer, kind of like a bonding experience, and so we were in Gatlinburg together. And all of, we were at this creek for the, the afternoon, and all of the guys on staff, we took off our shoes and, and went and played in the creek. We were jumping from rock to rock and having a, a good time. And we finally came back to the shore, and I reached down to pick up my shoes, and draped across my shoes is this big slithery snake. And I would like to tell you that being the adult I am, I stood up and said, hey, watch out, there's a snake here. But that's not the case. I think I screamed higher and louder than my six-year-old daughter Naomi can scream. And it probably went on for quite a while. And there's one person that was present that day that found it hilarious. Because while I was out playing in the creek, Michelle had found this dead snake nearby (laughs) that she thought she could have some fun with and put it on my shoes. So I think I have good reason for my fear. Snakes are creepy. I think they're scary, and I don't want any part of them. Our scripture this morning is without a doubt the creepiest and perhaps the weirdest story in the whole Bible. It comes from the book of Numbers, it's the Old Testament lectionary passage for today. Hear now these words from Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. From Mount Or they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. But the people became impatient on the way. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent poisonous serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord to take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a poisonous serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten shall look at it and live. So Moses made a serpent of bronze and put it upon a pole, and whenever a serpent bit someone, that person, that person would look at the serpent of bronze and live. This story is very strange, it's odd, but yet still, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So before we dive into this story a little bit, uh, I'd like to just give you a little bit of context about uh, uh, where we are in the, the story of Scripture. Uh, the Israelites are in the wilderness. They have been rescued out of Egypt by God. They have, uh, they have gone through the Red Sea. They've made it to Mount Sinai. The Ten Commandments, this covenant from God, has now um, been entered into with His people, which they've already not doing so well with that. Uh, but they're, they're camped at the base of this, this mountain, and they're camped there for quite a while. Uh, about a year. And finally, uh, towards the, the, the beginning of the book of Numbers, they're preparing to head out on their journey through the wilderness to the promised land. The land that God has promised to them. Uh, and so we, we see uh, from, from Numbers about chapter 10 to about 21, where I just read, a cycle that continues to happen. And we're going to take a look at some of the, the stories that happen uh, throughout those 10 chapters that lead up to what I just read. Uh, and, and so uh, after an, a, an extensive census where they take inventory of who is around them and what they have and they, they order their camp and they, they prepare for their journey, they're getting ready to head out uh, and they need to be organized. So after organizing their journey... They begin, finally, in the middle of chapter 10, this this journey in the wilderness. But there's this cycle that takes place where Israel starts out trusting Moses and God. Then something goes wrong, and they immediately start complaining. And they even oftentimes say that they had it better off back in Egypt, where they were slaves. They long to go back. And so this cycle uh, happens where they complain about it. They long to go back. Then something bad happens to them. They realize their sin. They repent and they receive forgiveness and healing. So this begins uh, in chapter 10, their journey away from the mountain where they've received this covenant. And then in chapter 11, almost immediately after they head out, they say this. Now, when the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes, the Lord heard it and his anger was kindled. Then the fire of the Lord burned against them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. But the people cried out to Moses and Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire abated. This is the first of many complaints in the book of Numbers. You would think that fire coming down from the Lord and burning people on the outsides of the camp would prevent future complaints, but it doesn't. We see this cycle several times. The people complain, God hears and is angered. Just a few verses later, we get episode two of this complaining. The rabble among them had a strong craving, and the Israelites also wept again and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we used to eat in Egypt for nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. And now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. They are misremembering their experiences in Egypt. If you've read the book of Exodus, you know that their experiences in Egypt were not easy. They weren't sitting around eating their garlic, onion, fish that they are describing here. Uh, They didn't have it easy in Egypt. They were slaves. Uh, Yet they longed to go back to that life as slaves. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families all at the entrances of their tents. Then the Lord became very angry and Moses was displeased. This time the Lord sends some sort of plague. Um, The complaining continues into chapter 12 about Moses and his leadership. God reminds them that Moses is the one that he has entrusted to lead them. So this cycle continues on and on. The Israelites end up reaching the promised land, what could have been the end of their journeys. They send spies to look at the land, to scout it out. Some of you know this story. The spies come out and, and they say, Uh, Moses, I don't think this is such a good idea. I saw those people over there. They're enormous. There's no way we can take them in battle. This is a bad idea. We should abandon it completely. That is a paraphrase, but it's something like that. They cry out and complain against Moses and against Aaron, their leadership. And in fact, they even say this. This is is verse 4 of chapter 14 of Numbers. So they said to one another, let us choose a captain and go back to Egypt. Again, Moses intercedes for the people and God takes them back. You get the point. You see this cycle when they complain and they wish to go back to Egypt. Before we look at the last of these bizarre, the most bizarre story of the the snakes that I read a moment ago, we need to reflect for just a minute on what it really means for the Israelites to long to go back to Egypt. Egypt. For us modern-day Christian readers, it can be easy to miss some of the real significance of this. The Israelite people were, and still are in many ways, defined by a singular story. It's their identity. It's who they are. They are the people whom God has saved out of Egypt. Throughout scripture, this is the story that defines them. Even today, when Jewish people celebrate the Passover, they remember the story that defines them as a people when God saved them out of Egypt. Not only that, but it's actually part of the way in which God has chosen to identify Himself to humans. He is the God who has rescued His people out of Egypt. It's how he identifies himself. To suggest that they go back is to completely forsake their identity as the people of God. They're completely forsaking who they have come to be as God's rescued people. And they're rejecting their God who has brought them out of Egypt. Now we come to the final complaint in the book of Numbers. In fact, God has just handed them yet another victory in battle over an enemy. But as they resume their travel, we're told they, they become impatient. Do you ever become impatient? I wonder how often our impatience prevents us from fully experiencing everything God has in store for us? How often does my obsession with getting what I want when I want it derail a journey that God is leading me on? The Israelites are impatient because they're not happy, once again, about their food and drink situation. Instead of simply asking God or or making a request through Moses for something else, or instead of just bearing with it because they have seen fire from heaven, they've seen all these horrible things happen when they complain, instead of all these better options, they choose to complain again. But Something's different this time. Something important is different this time. So each time the Israelites complain, each time that word complain is used in the book of Numbers, there is another word associated with the complaint. In Hebrew, it's a prefix that gets attached to a person's name. In our English translations, it simply says, against so-and-so. And so, thus far... Throughout the book of Numbers, their complaints have been against Moses or against Moses and Aaron. That's who their complaints are against. This time, there's another name with the prefix on it. Elohim takes the prefix Ba and it becomes Ba-Elohim or against God. This is the first time their complaints are directed against God. The Israelites have now placed themselves in a position against God Himself. Not just Moses or Aaron, but against God. Listen to their complaint again from verse 5. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we detest this miserable food. It's kind of strange that they say there is no food, and then they say, and we don't like the food that you did give us. Sounds a little bit like a teenager saying, there's no food in this house. The pantry's full, you just don't want anything in there. Now, I'm not going to spend the rest of our time this morning uh, explaining why God chooses to use these poisonous, or another translation is even scarier, fiery snakes as punishment. I'm not going to spend our time explaining that for two reasons. The first is because I have no idea why God uses snakes in this story. I simply don't know. Sometimes, Stories in Scripture are meant to just be read for what they are. But the, second idea, the second reason I'm not going to try to do that is because I'm not sure it really matters. There's still a lot for us to take away from this story. We are told that whenever an Israelite is bitten by one of these snakes, something happens. What happens when they're bitten by a snake? they die. (laughs) It's terrifying. We're told whenever they're bitten by a snake, they die. These snakes are a direct result of their continuous complaints. A direct result of their putting themselves against God. They're a direct result of the Israelites' sin. Their sin has now led to the consequence of death. The presence of the snakes around them is a terrifying reality. It's a terrifying symbol of the results of human sinful nature. Without intervention from God, the fate of these Israelites is simply to succumb to the death brought about by their sin. Church, you and I live in this same reality. Our sinfulness has brought about a terrifying situation that we live in every day. Our sin leads to death. Once bitten, the Israelites were powerless against the poison of the snakes. So, too, you and I are powerless against the venom of our sin. It leads us to sure and certain death. What a terrifying reality to live in. The Israelites realized that their only hope... (laughs) comes from somewhere outside of themselves. They realized they were powerless against these snakes. They needed help from somewhere else. So realizing this, they turn to Moses again, and they repent. Verse 7 says this, The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord to take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. But the Lord doesn't take away the snakes. See, their request was Moses, pray to the Lord to take away the snakes. Instead, the Lord makes the Israelites live with the reality of the snakes around them. He makes them live with the reality of the effects of their sin. Instead of eliminating the snakes, God provides an opportunity for healing. An image of a snake is raised up on a pole for them to turn to, to gaze upon. And if they do, they are healed. Imagine the person who is bitten by a snake, who goes and gazes upon this terrifying image, a reminder of what just hurt them, a reminder of their own sin, the very results of their sinfulness. Imagine the fear of looking this bronze serpent in the eye, it would be a reminder of the consequences of their sin, of the pain they have inflicted upon themselves. The Israelites were forced to look at an image that would remind them of their sinfulness. Earlier in this service, we sang... A great hymn that I I grew up singing with an organ. I love that you used organ on that song. That's the way I grew up singing that song. I don't think it can be sung in any other way without, without an organ. But we sang with power, lift high the cross. But how often in Western Christianity are our crosses nice and pretty and clean? We use them to decorate our sanctuaries or to wear around our necks. The image of the cross is, in fact, a gruesome image. It's an image that should serve as a reminder of, yes, our healing, but also the results of our sinfulness. We're not just looking at our Savior. We're looking at the effects of our sin. What our sin has caused. You and I have brought the snakes on ourselves. Lent is a reminder of this reality that we live in. It's a time to reflect. A time to mourn. but also a time to gaze upon the cross. In John chapter 3, a religious leader named Nicodemus, a Pharisee, he comes to Jesus and begins asking Him questions. He's heard Jesus' message and he's interested. Perhaps impressed. Certainly a bit confused. And in part of their conversation, Jesus tells Nicodemus, To enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. And and Nicodemus asks more questions about what that means. But part of Jesus' answer is found in John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Listen to this. This is what Jesus chooses to use as a response to someone asking, how can I be saved from my sin? Jesus says, And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. We still live in the reality of the snakes. The snakes have not been completely removed from our life. We live with the reality of our sinful nature all around us our own sin and other people's sin here we are in a terrifying reality the consequences of our individual and collective sin has brought about sure and certain death there is but one hope and it's not in ourselves it's to gaze upon the one who is lifted up on a pole as we continue in this season of Lent, remember to repent. And remember to gaze upon the cross where Jesus paid it all. Would you pray with me? God, we thank You for all of the stories in Scripture. The ones that are quick and easy to read and understand, and others that are quite strange. God, we pray that in this story we will be reminded to look to you for our healing, the only place our healing can come from. And as we continue to journey through Lent together, lead us to the cross.